And if you've got a Bible, please can I encourage you to uh, open it to Psalm 22. And uh, there are many deep and powerful things there. Uh, but I just want to skim over it this morning uh, and focus on the first verse, if I may. But first, let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are good and your love endures forever. And Lord, whoever we are, wherever we are, however we are today, we pray that we will know and experience more of your goodness and more of your enduring love. Whatever we're going through, Lord, may we know that love and power. Amen. Well, today we continue uh, through our series in the Psalms that we've been looking at over the summer, and we're in Psalm 22. And my title for today's talk is Desperate Prayers from the Horns of the Unicorns. Desperate Prayers from the Horns of the Unicorns, and more of that later. This is perhaps the most well-known Psalm of Lament in Scripture. And the lament psalms are songs which convey the angst and the pain and the sorrow and the doubt and the questioning that the psalmists are going through. And I'm so grateful to God that by his spirit, he inspires his people to record these things and then he puts them in this canon in our holy scripture. In uh, the movie and the play by William Nicholson, Shadowlands, about C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis says we read to know we're not alone. We read to know we're not alone. And when we read these psalms, some of us who are in the thick of it, who are in the miry mud, who are in the pit, who are feeling surrounded and encircled, we read to know we're not alone that others have been there before us and come through it. And the comfort and the encouragement that they received then, we can receive from what they record. The Psalms of Lament, particularly Psalm 22, tells us we're not alone. The first thing I want to highlight this morning is David's sense that God had gone that God had gone, that he'd disappeared, that he'd evaporated. The God that he says in this psalm he'd known from the womb suddenly is no longer there. And in the place of the God who was present, there is just pressure. There are just problems. There is affliction. There is attrition. And he gives voice. He begins with this question. I actually think there are two questions in the one statement. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why and where you've forsaken me? Why and where are you? And these are questions that many of us may be asking at this time. Indeed, these are questions that go up around the world as our whole world groans in so many ways. David himself feels abandoned by God. And he's in a state of real anguish. And he's calling out, 
day and night. He's calling out incessantly, verse 2, and yet it seems his prayers have fallen on deaf ears. God doesn't seem to be answering. God doesn't therefore seem to be listening. God seems to have gone walkabout. And David goes on to describe the almost physical effects of the situation that he's in. He can't eat and he can't drink. His tongue is stuck to the top of his mouth as if it was stuck to a bit of clay. And he can't sleep. He says he can't find any rest. He, his bones are sticking out because he hadn't been eating and he's saying it's as if his very heart is melting. There's a kind of physicality to his anxiety and to his condition that makes him feel as if he is dissolving, melting, fading. I wonder if some of you know about this. Maybe some of you, even at this moment, are going through this. And if so, we got some encouragement this morning. Now, we don't know the setting particularly for this psalm. We're not told that, and that's probably helpful because all our settings and contexts are different, but we can all be spoken to and encouraged by this. And the fact is that David experienced a whole lot of trouble in his life, and quite a bit of it was his own fault through active sin or through negligence, but others was just the context of his life. He faced anguish of being disdained by his half-brothers. Jewish tradition tells us or, or, or suggests that he was born illegitimately. There are a couple of psalms that would support that. And um, that he was actually an outcast from his family. That's why when Samuel came to anoint the future king, all the sons of Jesse were brought before Samuel, but not David, who's out doing the work of the servant. The anguish of his loveless marriage to Michal, who mocked him in his spirituality, laughed at him, scorned him. The anguish when he was hunted by Saul, who was seeking to kill him out of his jealousy. The anguish when confronted by Samuel and told, you're the man. And not in a good way. You're guilty. You're guilty of adultery with Bathsheba, and of murdering her husband Uriah. The anguish when David's firstborn son to Bathsheba died despite David's persistent prayers and repentance. The anguish of the plague that fell upon God's people as a direct result of David's own pride and sin with the census. The anguish when his son Ammon rapes his daughter Tamar. Can you imagine it? The anguish when his son Absalom usurps his throne and pushes his dad off the throne and takes over and then in daylight sleeps with his father's concubines. The anguish when God refuses to allow him to build a temple for God's presence, for God's ark, because he says, you got too much blood on your hands. So many things in his life pile up, maybe cumulatively, to just bring him down. We don't know the occasion. We don't need to know. We can put ourselves there, whatever situation we're in. But the fact is, David made many mistakes. 
and he made many enemies, and he faced many difficulties. And he speaks about them. In my last talk uh, two weeks ago about being surrounded, he talks here about that. The imagery he uses of wild dogs, lions, and bulls. And all of these convey a sense of threat and intimidation and aggression and violence towards him. And he's overwhelmed. And he's at breaking point. But the worst of it is not the affliction per se. But it's the absence of God. The silence of God. Does it imply an apparent indifference of God? The God he'd known since the womb has gone quiet. But the silence of God doesn't silence David. And he instead presses in and he pushes closer. David still turns to God, even if it seems God has turned away from David. And in verse 3 to verse 5, he actually recalls and recounts that in the past, his ancestors had called out to God, and God had heard, and God had delivered them. And he's remembering in his own darkness what he knows God had once achieved in the light. Sometimes we've got to do that in the apparent darkness that we're in to remember what he did in the light. So three times in verse 1 and verse 2, and three times you'll know is a kind of Hebraic structure conveying absoluteness, completeness. Three times he says, my God, my God, and then the next verse, my God. He still is God, and he's still turning to him, and he's still pressing in. I think the first lesson for us today, if you're going through it, is this, don't give up, but press on and press in, still your God. My God, my God, my God. Secondly, why should we do that? There isn't anywhere else to go, is there? And that's the best place to go. Secondly, Jesus felt God had gone. One of the great ironies in this psalm is that even in David's dark night of the soul, the Spirit is using him. The Spirit almost is inspiring him and speaking through him. The Spirit of God is at work. God hasn't left him. And David's own prayer and uh, psalm of lament is also prophesied. Is prophecy. He's prophesying. There's something of God's economy being spoken about here. And a thousand years later, after David records this, Jesus will recite this. Psalm 22 is one of the most famous messianic psalms. You can almost read this psalm as a commentary on the crucifixion. They've pierced my hands and feed these wild dogs, these wild bulls of Bashan surround me. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. What did Jesus say? I thirst. The last words of Jesus on the cross, the last words before he expires and dies are the first words of this psalm. 
My God, my God. Why? Where? What on earth is going on? I wonder, was Jesus meditating on this psalm throughout the crucifixion? I think perhaps. Why? Well, Jesus is experiencing God-forsakenness for our sake. That's why. We don't understand it. It's a mystery. It's a marvel, but it is a mystery. How can this be? I don't know. I've spent this weekend talking with our resident theologian, Dan Hayes, saying, how do we understand this? How can God be separated from God? Or is it Jesus in his humanity and divinity? What is going on? We don't know the text and the last. But what we do know is this, that God in the flesh experiences the reality of this. He knows of what we are made and remembers that we are but dust. God is too pure to look upon evil, to look upon sin, says the prophet Habakkuk. And the Apostle Paul says, God made him who knew no sin be sin for us. And somehow mysteriously, in that moment, at Calvary, at Golgotha, at the place of the skull, at that holocaust, the sacrificial lamb is Jesus, the substitute, the sin bearer, the suffering servant, the one who stands in our stead. And he experiences the reality and the consequence of our sin, of humankind's sin. The son of man suffers for the sons of men and God punishes sin on him. And he knows that punishment and he knows that judgment and he knows the consequence of that which is ultimately estrangement from God. Jesus, the Son of God, as the representative Son of Man, experiences for us what we deserved. And the fracture and alienation and separation, the God-forsakenness stemming from sin. The gospel writers tell us that the whole world went dark from noon till three. That's when the sun's at its highest. That's when the sun's at its hottest. That's when the sun's at its brightest. And there, at the brightest part of the day, all the lights go out. Why? Is this what Jesus said when this is, you know, your hour, when, when, when darkness reigns, when evil reigns? Is that what's going on? Or is it the light of the world being snuffed out? Or the Father just turning out the lights because he didn't want the world to look at the ignominy and shame that the Son suffers for us. And from those cruel nails, Jesus says, why? My God, why? Why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me? Why have you abandoned me? Of course, the eternal Son of God knew why. They'd been working at it for millennia. He is identifying with the cause and the consequence of all humanity's groaning whys and where are yous. I love what C.H. Spurgeon, the old Baptist preacher from the Victorian era said. He says, we can imagine the Father's answer to Jesus' question, why? Because, my son, you've chosen to stand 
in the place of guilty sinners. You who have never known sin have made the infinite sacrifice to become sin and received my just wrath upon the sin and sinners. You do this because of your great love and because of my great love. This is the mystery. That's why. My God, why? That's why. Because there wasn't any other way. And Jesus experiences in some form this God-forsakenness, God-forsakenness representing us, and he does that for our sake, so that we are not eternally forsaken. The Father doesn't save the Son at this moment because the Son is saving the world. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A friend of mine wrote to me this week, they didn't know what I was speaking about, but they were telling me about some terrible situation that's going on in, in, uh, in our context with family in real suffering. And they said this, Jesus draws near to us in the crush. I thought it was a very interesting phrase. And so opposite, he draws near to us in the crush. Isaiah prophesied he was crushed for our iniquities. In verse 6 of this psalm, there's a lovely little line. It says, the psalmist says, I am a worm. That's how he felt, less than nothing, insignificant, squashed underfoot. Except that the word that is chosen here for worm is a very unusual word. The usual word for a worm is rima. But the word here is tola. And the tola was a specific worm that lived in trees that would be squeezed, and out of it came a red dye that was used to dye clothes red. Is there something prophetic and symbolic here? I don't know. But Jesus is crushed against a tree, the worm for the sons of men to bring them to God. David asked why because he felt God was gone. Jesus asked why, because he knew God was gone in that moment as he experienced and represented us and experienced judgment. And then lastly, what about us? Maybe we feel today that God has gone. And that cry certainly goes up all around the world today, doesn't it? My God, my God, why? And where? And there are so many bitter tears that are being spilled. The medieval writer, St. John of the Cross, coined the term, the dark night of the soul. Some of you may have heard it, read it, used that term. And he used it to express the experience that, he, that Christians often experience, of a sense of kind of spiritual separation from God, of isolation a kind of existential um, breach between them and the God that they'd known. Often coming with that sense of dread, threat. Someone once said that in the dark night of the soul, it's always three o'clock in the night. You know that time, three o'clock in the night. Not three o'clock in the day, <laughs> with the Lord, but three o'clock in the night. And dawn, is a, is, it drags. 
and our problems are very present to our mind. This is part of the normal human life, but it's even part of the Christian life in a very particular way. God, why, God, where? The remarkable Mother Teresa, who was a 20th century icon of grace, experienced this sense of the absence, not the presence of God, for much of her ministry. It seems almost having said yes to God, to go and serve God amongst the poorest of the poor and to give them the grace of the gospel and the tenderness of Christ, it seems that God somehow disappeared from her. And she walked by faith and worked by faith, not by sight. She once spoke these words that were recorded by her spiritual director. In the darkness, Lord my God, who am I that you should forsake me? The child of your love and now become as the most hated one, the one you have thrown away as unwanted, unloved. I call, I cling, I want, and there is no one to answer. Where I try to raise my thoughts to heaven, there is such convicting emptiness that those very thoughts return like knives and hurt my very soul. Love, the word, it brings nothing. I'm told God lives in me, and yet the reality of darkness and coldness and emptiness is so great that nothing touches my soul. How about that? And Mother Teresa. Church made her a saint. I mean, we're all saints. God made us all saints, and then the church felt it could add a bit of cream and say, <laughs> you're a saint. Yeah, we know that. But, listen, she was. She was extraordinary. Who of us have lived like her? And yet she's doing it for Christ. A reporter once said to her, what keeps you going? And she didn't answer a word. She pointed to a crucifix on the wall. It's the cross of Christ. That's what. That's why. And her sense of God's absence to her didn't diminish God's work through her. Just as the sense of God's absence to David didn't diminish God's prophetic work through him. Just as the, work, the sense of Jesus' absence of the Father didn't diminish, indeed it was the basis of God's work through him for us. But maybe you're going through this at the moment. For whatever reason, whatever situation, it seems you're surrounded, hemmed in, and pressed and crushed like a worm. And out of you, all you've got is, my God, my God, why? The thing is, this cry doesn't fall on deaf ears. David thinks it does. But by the time we get to verse 21, the psalm begins to resolve itself. God hadn't forsaken David. God hadn't forsaken Jesus. He raised him from the dead on the third day. And God hasn't forsaken you. If verse 1 of chapter 22, of Psalm 22, is the most famous verse, I think verse 21 should be. And after this litany of woe, with just an odd glimmer of remembering what God has done in the past, the tense and the tone shifts. The English Standard Version says, from the horns of the wild oxen you have rescued or you have answered me. But the old King James 
reflecting the Geneva Bible, that reflected the Latin Vulgate, that reflected the Greek Septuagint, says, from the horns of the unicorns, you have delivered me. I mean, there are no unicorns. It was a bad translation into the Greek monokeros and then into the Latin Vulgate by Jerome. It became unicornus, a single horn. <laughs> so it's a complete nonsense. But I'm hoping you'll remember it. And that's why I'm underlining it, because from the horns of the unicorns, you deliver me. From the horns of the wild oxen, you delivered me. And the word that is used there, anitani, or ornitorni, I think you pronounce it, doesn't just mean hear, but it means respond. God hears and acts and responds and delivers. From the horns of the unicorns, you have heard me, you've answered me, and you've delivered me. I need to finish, perhaps the band had come up. You may feel that God has forsaken you. He hasn't. This summer, for various reasons, partly I think just out of exhaustion, but then we've had some real serious family problems and then various other things that have come in, I, I really began to spiral. Have you ever had that? You so need a holiday, and then when you get there, it's awful. Yeah, this was one of them, apart from the grace of my wife and children. Anyway, I just sank into a pit of self-pity. What a useless, pathetic vicar I can be sometimes, but I'm on holiday. And uh, one day, I was just calling out to God. I was feeling so down and so trapped on all sides by these particular issues that, that we were facing. And I'm walking alongside a canal in Yorkshire. And I actually said to God, I said, Lord, this was my prayer. I said, Lord, I wouldn't treat my son like this. My sons were in front of me. I wouldn't treat them like this. I've worked for you for 30 years, Lord. I've tried hard to serve you. And here you are, you've dropped me in it, and I'm in, I don't know what to do. I can't see a way round of it, round. And on this occasion, my wife's beautiful advice is not helping. Anyway, finally I got out of a pit of self-pity and I'm still walking. It was a long walk along the canal. I said, Lord, please speak to me. My God, my God, why and where? I'm quoting this psalm. It's why I'm preaching on it today. It was in my head. Why and where? And suddenly in front of me, I saw two canal boats. And the first one had a, a large Christian fish, Ixus, you know, which is um, an acronym of, um, you know, God's son, uh, Jesus Christ, God's son, Savior, and so on. But the name of the boat was Shammah. That's Hebrew for there. It's actually the last revelation of God's name in scripture. After all the names that are given by God in the Old Testament, of all the predicates that are associated with him, the final one is Jehovah Shammah, the God who's there. All of these things I am and I'm there. He's the God who's there. I saw it. I loved it. I thought, yes, he's there. And what was the next boat called? The next boat alongside was called Shiloh. Shiloh is an ancient site in Israel believed that Noah's Ark came to rest there. Some suggest that. I don't, I don't think so. But It was where the tabernacle was left under Samuel. 
Shiloh means peace, means tranquility. God, where are you? Why have you forsaken? Why have you left me? But he's the God who answers us from the horns of the unicorns and the wild beasts and whatever other trouble we may be facing. And he says, I am the God who is there and I am the God who is peace.